Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hello and welcome to another episode of Open Banking Expo Unplugged. I'm Ellie Duncan, Head of Editorial and Broadcast and your host as always. And today I'm really delighted to be joined by Ruth Randhofer. Uh, Now, Ruth has many strings to her bow. Uh, She's actually a member of Open Banking Expo's advisory board, but on a day-to-day basis, uh, Ruth is an industry expert, an author, a public speaker, a coach and advisor. Um, She has began her career in in banking and, and spent sort of over a decade with Citi. So she obviously has lots of insight into this particular industry. I mentioned there that Ruth is an author. Uh, She's previously published a book uh, about EU payments integration back in 2010. This was followed by uh, another book, Transaction Banking and the Impact of Regulatory Change, which came out in 2014. And Ruth, in fact, joins me today to talk about her third book, which is just about to be published. The title of this book is Redecentralization, Building the Digital Financial Ecosystem. So welcome to the podcast, Ruth. Thank you so much, Ellie. It's a pleasure to be with you and all the audience. Well, let's start with with your latest book then. Tell us a bit more about it. Where did the idea come from? What's kind of the subject matter here? Yeah, so um, the title is quite interesting, Redecentralization, because it's a little bit made up. Um, it sort of implies a return to a more decentralized world. And what I mean by that, I was really motivated by the fact that... Uh, We are now in a digital economy, but the digital economy hasn't necessarily been designed in a way that would achieve some sort of equilibrium between the public sector, the private sector, and the people. We actually do see a lot of centralization with big technology firms. There's arguably a case around governments having almost abdicated control to digital states by now. And when we think about the individual, you know, we feel that more and more Uh, of individuals are actually being influenced with all these algorithms around what to shop, what to think, with whom to engage around social media. So we have a bit of a digital economy, which is currently not really working with a human at the center. It's more the other way around. We have a centralization phenomenon, which comes with power control um, and all the potentially negative consequences of that. And so my key argument is, is there a way to use technology and design of new systems, particularly in light of now moving into the era of Web3 and the metaverse, is there a way for technology and system design to actually create an equilibrium and to redecentralize certain elements to give more control back to the individual, whether that's around data privacy, data control consent, but also like removing this constant influencing of individuals so that the systems are designed to achieve more of a balance between the three spheres of public, private sector and the people themselves. There's lots to unpack there. I mean, it's an absolutely fascinating topic and uh, and, and a fascinating book, uh, having read it myself. So, um, but before we dive into it a little bit more, I was just wondering, you know, I referred to the fact that you've published two books previously. So is there any kind of link to those previous books? Is this sort of a natural progression for you or or have you gone down kind of another route entirely, would you say, for this book? So so there is certainly one common factor that all three books somehow talk about payments, which is the underlying pipe of value in the whole economy. 
we need money, we need payments, even though these are all social contracts to a certain extent or political contracts for that matter, and increasingly technological contracts and um, constructs. But this is an underlying theme. The first book was very much about the extreme payment innovation from a regulatory perspective and a system perspective in Europe, with the euro coming in, the single euro payments area being developed, the first ever payment legislation being negotiated, which I happened to sort of do on behalf of the European banks at the time, and still some sentences in the payments law, even today, have been actually written by me. So I can hear out that I'm a bit of a nerd in that respect. But this law and the combination of infrastructure, business rule change and legislation really opened the floodgates to fintech innovation. So it's quite foundational in terms of the first book because it echoes sort of the development era of something new that then became the fintech revolution. And I was right in the middle of it, which is quite exciting. So it's sort of an eyewitness report of all of these things that happened at the time. And frankly, you could do now another book around where we are because some things have worked very well. And some things are clearly crumbling for very different reasons. The second book then was at the time when the financial crisis had hit and there was a massive fallout. And there was, of course, the prudential regulatory response and really every type of regulatory response. We saw an increase in what we called at the time the regulatory tsunami, uh, where many, many measures across the board were, were defined and determined. And some of these measures inevitably had an impact on the real economy. So the ambition of that second book was not only to explain things like the Basel Accords and all these different formulas and what they mean in reality when you work with a bank, when you want to borrow money as an institution or an individual, but equally how some of those measures are actually backfiring in terms of economic growth, the ability to help smaller businesses and things like that. So it was very much an economically inspired regulatory and industry review book to say we had the crisis, this is a tsunami of laws, they are now in place. And what we're starting to see is that the real economy is in some instances, including global trade, negatively impacted by that. Now, the third book really is very much reflecting what happened in the last few years, because we didn't only have the COVID crisis, which was a very interesting experiment from a data privacy online engagement, Zoom, you know, there were so many puzzled pieces that have changed our behavior as individuals because we, we had to engage with the digital world because we were locked up at home. But equally, we had an explosion in the previous years around the crypto market, around NFTs, ICOs, all of those new innovations of money and underlying ways of moving the money, the flow element. So the payments money value flow core really never left me from that perspective because I'm looking in this new book at how money started from beads and coins to bits, you know, and how we are now in a digital cyber money world with very different money issuers, not only central banks, maybe in future central bank digital currencies, but of course, stable coins, cryptocurrencies, and all the other digital types of assets that has fundamentally changed in the last five, seven years. But we're also in a world where AI is becoming more and more prominent. And AI, I'm looking at from the sort of key big origins in the 1960s, which were more at a conceptual level with the first computers starting to automate very simple tasks up to the discussions of, you know, GoPro and, and you know, Google computers matching, you know, or winning over very complex games in the sort of early 2000s to now where we have uh, open AI and chat GTP and the whole generative AI development, which creates another raft of societal questions. Are my kids going to write their own essays in future? 
or will they secretly interrogate the AI computer and suddenly it's all done, but it, I can't really be sure that they have learned something about it. So this is a sort of a, almost a societal evolution, but it gives you a very good overview of the different categories of AI from very simple to very so sophisticated and some really good examples of what types of solutions have emerged. Of course, there's always a focus in my world around financial services. So there's even a section around using AI, you know, agent-based simulation, for example, in terms of risk management, your organization, but even for a country to um, sort of uh, predict new pandemics, which of course became quite topical a few years ago. So this gives you a good AI kind of pillar background. And then really the missing puzzle in the digital economy, which is increasingly being called for to be solved, is digital identity, of course. Um, and that's something which we all have experienced and engaged with naturally since Web 1 and 2 because of our email logon, right, or the Facebook logon. But now the question really becomes, as we move into a metaverse type of, you know, virtual immersive ecosystem, we need better ways of identifying ourselves, authenticating ourselves, so that, you know, we can't be the abuser. For example, grooming children in the metaverse has already become an issue. Um, equally, that we are being gaining access to different services, whether it's opening a bank account or entering into a specific game that has an age restriction. So we need to think about how digital identity can be designed and interoperable in that Web3 environment to make sure that you as an individual still preserve your data. And therefore, I'm calling for an almost an embedded design because people have been used to sharing all their data. But if you create the future internet in a way that data minimization is at the core of the process, you help people to automatically avoid sharing and only share when they actually can send and potentially use some third-party providers on the trusted basis to do so. I want to come on to ask you a bit more about the parts of the book that, that where you write about CBDCs and digital identity. But something that, that struck me, and you kind of referred to the fact there that you do kind of go back in time and, and talk about kind of the evolution of payments. So it does read much like a history book um, in certain parts. You know, you really get this insight into the journey that, that money and financial services has taken over the, the centuries and, and the decades, right? So I'm wondering if that part of, of your research, you know, did you find that that was just as innovative as kind of the development of money and financial services and payments is, is now? You know, were were people innovating as, as you far back as several centuries ago? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm giving this background because the lens of this book is on re-decentralization, a return to a more decentralized governance, removal of centralized control where you can afford the removal for various reasons, such as, you know, personal protection in the digital economy. And I'm looking at that history of money, particularly through the lens of, you know, at the very beginning, it was all quite decentralized. You know, there were different people, different communities trading with each other. There was no money system. You know, some people would accept beads. Other people would accept shells. There were different means of, of defining value and using this as a mechanism to exchange which really followed the initial barter, you know, I give you one egg, you give me half a chicken sort of story, right? And so the decentralized backdrop of the old days and how that became centralized with the rule of law, with governance institutions, with banks being embedded into the system, central banks coming along, you know, the actual coinage that was very much driven, of course, by sovereigns at the time and how coinage itself initially represented value in its own right, 
but then became fractionalized in a way. And it was really just as an IOU, as something you exchange, um, as sort of something that represents value, uh, became very, very centralized. And we ended up in a very centralized world. But then suddenly, 15, 10 years ago, um, the sort of whole idea of Bitcoin was was really initially driven by a decentralized approach. We create something that we attach value to in the digital kind of cyber world. And we do the whole creation and the money movement of this in a way that would be not controlled by a central bank or a government. So it became decentralized from a governance perspective. But then very quickly, because greed is a human driver and there was a, a natural limit to Bitcoin mining, it became rather centralized because, of course, only a few people agreed on the code to take the system forward. And this is why it's quite important to understand the definitions, which is sort of the beginning of the book. What is centralization? What is decentralization? And also, what is distribution? Because, again, when we think about all the articles we've been reading over the years, there's still a lot of confusion around distribution and decentralization. Something can be very distributed. So you're putting data points in different pockets, or you may be sharing the same data point with 20 pockets in, in the sort of cyber world. But it doesn't mean that the governance and control of these data points is decentralized. It may mean that you could have a central bank, back to your example of CBDC, that issues something on a distributed ledger where different nodes can hold the same information, but the control of how much is issued, the process of issuing, redeeming, etc., is still governed only by one entity, for example, a central bank. And that is, of course, the ground sort of layer to understanding all the concepts, because then I go into a framework around decentralization. How do we measure whether something is centralized or not? What are the criteria we should be looking at to ultimately end up, of course, with recommendations of how much value you can gain from decentralizing certain aspects of different systems and how you embed that into systems as you design the digital economy. On the the part of the book, which is all about CBDCs, I mean, you know, you write about that at great length in the book and you describe CBDCs as being, as you say, the sort of the most recent reaction to the threat of decentralization. You know, we hear a lot about different central banks carrying out various kind of CBDC sandboxes almost. So they're testing it, they're they're looking into the design and and how it might, you know, one CBDC might sort of interact with um, another CBDC. And I, and I guess as you're writing, I mean, we, we kind of talked about this before we started recording, the fact that, you know, you're writing about an area that is really fast moving. So how did you approach, because, because there is so much development, so much testing uh, going on in, in the world of CBDCs at the moment, do you kind of reach a conclusion about where all this is going in, in the book or how did you kind of approach writing about it? Yeah, I think I'm trying to give the reader a perspective around, first of all, the motivation for going down that route, which very often is being explained by central banks as modernizing their money, maintaining the monetary anchor. But in a certain extent, it, it might be just FOMO. You know, we've seen some bigger markets doing really big pilots like China. Um, and of course, we had this phenomenon of Bitcoin and all the other cryptos that have arrived since then that initially created a lot of angst in the central bank community. Somebody is doing money outside of our control. How can we rein in and make sure this doesn't become mainstream? Because then, of course, you have no way to to manage the economy from a monetary policy perspective. So I think 
it's the sort of the origins and the rationale, but equally the understanding of what we really talk about. Central bank digital currencies are clearly not decentralized. They will be issued by a central authority, which is a central bank, which is this return to centralization in this instance. Equally, um, CBDC projects range from retail projects to wholesale projects. So, And there's a very important definition attached to both of these, which also goes into my examples around the future of cross-border payments, something I've been researching for a very long time. Because in the retail space, we all know domestic systems like, you know, SEPA in Europe, faster payments in the UK, thinking about a retail CBDC for you and me as individual users is a very different story to thinking about a wholesale CBDC that would be used in capital markets domestically and potentially cross-border. So they're very different concepts, very different values and volumes associated to these two. Um, and frankly, most of the conversations are happening around the retail CBDC level, which are arguably not the big economic impactful ones. But uh, it's those conversations that actually have to do with how do I get my citizens to actually incentivize themselves to adopt it? Um, and it, it's very interesting to think about the drivers. I mean, you have a number of countries ranging from Cambodia to Jamaica to the Bahamas and Nigeria that have done CBDC for reasons of financial inclusion, fighting fraud, uh, and, and frankly, you know, sort of in, in some instances, developing markets that maybe haven't got the plethora of digital payment solutions, including open banking that we have here in Europe and the UK. But when you think about Europe and the UK as an example, and that was very much the feedback also by the e-commerce and merchant community, people have up to 20 checkout options online. And so now thinking about adding a CBDC as another payment instrument that arguably competes with the fintech world that has created a whole ecosystem of payment institutions, EMIs, third-party payment providers, initiating transactions, providing you account data. All of this could be also intermediated by a central bank that says, oh, you can have your little CBDC wallet uh, and you just use it for payments. And so that, in, in a funny way, brings us full circle because my third book was talking, my first book was talking about the first payment service directive opening up the ecosystem of different payment players that didn't need to be banks. Other entities were allowed to provide payment services in different ways to really create that competition and fintech revolution to a situation where now you could ultimately have a CBDC that might crowd out that whole retail payment market, which is, of course, not an intention. Uh, so th this is a very controversial area. It's also not clear how some of the design considerations are actually encouraging people to adopt it. I mean, apart from the checkout options that there are plenty, um, you know, would people really move their commercial money into CBDCs because you would have to convert it? And frankly, we've seen examples from from the success rate in China where the CBPOE, CBOE um has, you know, PBOC has actually issued and helicoptered digital currency into the markets and, and you know, gave you money for free, basically. And people still felt that they didn't even want to incur the whole friction of moving their whole transaction flows from an Alipay or, a, you know, a WeChat pay into the sort of CBDC wallet. So this whole consumer retail aspect is a very interesting one. And of course, the banks are concerned that if suddenly consumers would feel more confidence with their central bank money in their digital wallet, which today is, of course, only the physical cash they have, then they might even be able to do a, a fairly quick run on the banks. I mean, we remember the times of 20 years ago where people were queuing at a Northern Rock ATM 
if you wanted to do a bank run today, you just move all your you know commercial bank money from you know, from a Barclays account into the central bank ledger, and you would run on on Barclays. So there have to be limits and 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 defunding models, and it gets very very complicated. And at the end of the day, you may say, well, what's the value? for a developed market like the UK or Europe in doing that versus maybe what is the value for Bahamas that has lots of excluded people that don't even have bank accounts. So you have a bit of a conversation on that level. The wholesale piece is quite different and something I discussed actually this morning around the capital markets. Having a sort of a technological distributed ledger solution to move wholesale money between players and to connect it also into the security system so you have the cash lag and the trading leg that then atomically settle could create extreme efficiencies, T plus zero, instant settlement of buying securities and settling for them with automated reconciliation. And you could achieve that by connecting different systems. For example, in the UK, you could connect Crest with RTGS2, which is sort of in the final stages of the making, on the same ledger as systems where you achieve atomic settlement and all the reconciliation that comes of it. This is currently being discussed in terms of experimental conversations, but it's not taken forward in any sort of significant way at this stage. But I think the wholesale CBDC question is a more interesting one because it also raises lots of questions around cross-border FX markets. Who will be the liquidity providers? How create bank? How do central banks create interoperability between CBDCs? And what is the question around fungibility? Are you going to allow foreign banks to hold your currency or is this really just all based on a beneficial ownership model, which would also need to be agreed? So I think we're quite far away from very big CBDC implementations, but we do see quite adamantly that the ECB is very keen on doing something on the retail side. The Bank of England is currency currently consulting on it. And what I'm putting in the book particularly is for anybody to see some of the key questions that you would need to ask at a design business model, technological, and even user impact level. Because I've been recently researching this topic for years. I did a PHPD paper on a framework for digital euro in 2017. And I can tell you that until today, some of the very big questions that I raised in that paper and things you have to look out for have still not been answered. So, you know, even though it's very exciting and technology experiments are going on cross-border and domestically, a lot of it is still a technology testing. But we we are not really at the sort of fungibility questions on the cross-border piece, and we're also not completely in the detail of design and specific technology. It, what is clear, though, is that we might have quite a few central banks uh, using a centralized ledger. So there, there might not even be any distribution. It might not even be a DLT. So we will have to see when uh, rubber hits the road on that. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think, as you say, in your book, it comes across just, just how many questions remain unanswered, really, when it comes to CBDC implementations. Well, look, I want to move on quickly to talk about digital identity, something, again, that, that you cover in your new book. And as ever, whenever you know we mentioned digital identity, that word trust crops up. So what's your main findings or assertions, really, around digital identity in your book, um, when it comes to you know establishing that that trust that's so necessary among consumers and among um, businesses as well, of course. Yeah, so I think it's first of all, it's really quite important to establish what we mean by identity and what we mean by digital identity, which is really after you enrolled yourself, 
Simple example, you see me on the screen, I say I'm Ruth. You sort of accept that statement that I self-certify, so I'm now enrolled. If you see me again down the road in a few weeks' time, you will recognize me as Ruth and you will re-authenticate me as Ruth. And so the whole premise of identity really has nothing to do with identity per se. It has to do with authentication. So I'm trying to provide some clarity of thought for people that work in this space or are interested in this space. And also the very clear difference of a legal identity, which is given through your government passport, versus many other forms of identities that might not be at that high level of government endorsement and validation. The idea of this, this chapter particularly is to, first of all, give examples of centralized identity models and decentralized or self-sovereign identity models and what elements are centralized and decentralized and to really understand that digital identity is the glue and the pass key into the digital economy. Whilst today we're still dabbling with many different digital identities, we have different sign-ons for different websites. And on top of that, regarding the data privacy, we have we experience cookie consent journeys that are in most cases illegal, to be honest, because we sort of abdicate all the data we can give to a third-party provider with even, without even understanding it. But in future, particularly in light of designing Web3, we need not only technical standards for digital identity, which are being discussed in the World Web3 uh, Consortium, but we need a business and market standard, and we need clarity how you embed it into the system. To give you a simple example, if I sign on with my digital identity, I will end up ultimately having almost a domain of identities. So I have many different things that authenticate myself as me, that confirm that I am the one. So I could have my university as a, a credential issuer that has issued my university degree in a digital format to me, and I can hold that university degree as one of the issued credentials in my identity wallet. And if I want to get a job, my future employer will ask, you know, do you have a degree? And I will then share this issued document with the university, which will become the, with the employer, which becomes the validator. So you always have an issuer of the credential and a validator. Of course, in an extreme sense, self-sovereign identity could imply that you self-issue and self-certify all of the stuff, but that would, of course, be the risk that you make up all sorts of things about yourself, which means that nobody will allow you any access in anything online that has any meaning. Anything age-restricted would require that somebody has actually verified that you are of that age. You can then use zero-knowledge proof technology just to confirm to a third party that wants to know, yes, I'm over 18, but they don't need to know my date of birth. They don't even sometimes need to know my name if I want to enter a certain game in the metaverse, for example. So these are the sort of use cases. But equally, you may require more legal credentials, such as a digital passport that you could hold in your identity wallet, which allows you then to open a bank account online. And it's very fascinating to see the, um, the ambition of the European Union with the um, e-identity wallet that is sort of starting to roll out this year to change the power dynamics because until today we really have been given ways of signing and credentialing with different platforms and if you think about you know today you can sign on onto lots of different platforms with your meta facebook sign on or your google sign on so these platforms really hold your identity and frankly could remove it right they could remove your access there's a lot of centralized control 
what the EU wants to achieve is that you provide get a digital identity wallet, which holds all these different credentials that have been issued about you, car registration, with a link back to the car registration authority as another example, and that you use this wallet to sign on even to a Facebook meta or even to Google. So it's reversing the power dynamic, which is really crucial. But equally in this new identity world, you will have third-party trust providers where you can distribute your credentials. So you could hold multiple digital wallets. So you don't have all your data in one centralized stored platform. It would be distributed and decentralized. Um, and it is really about making consent and data minimization the key criteria in the underlying system. Make sure by the system itself that you don't divulge everything, but only what is asked for. Use a third-party provider to share it on your behalf potentially and evaluate whether it is required to divulge so much and equally make it consent-based so that the individual sees what they are sharing. And the flip side and benefit of doing that is, of course, that you can finally start monetizing your data because not everybody has it. Today, we're in a situation where my data is all out about me and I can ask different entities, can you please pay me something for it? But it's already out there. It's a very hard argument. Doing it the other way around allows you to monetize and be much more careful also on your personal data protection in that digital ecosystem. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. And and um, I highly recommend, of course, uh, that our listeners go away and, and get a hold of a copy of your book and, and read it because there is so, so much in there. And, you know, without giving too much away, Ruth, but do you finish the book with any calls to action? What do you hope that your readers essentially will, will take away from it? Yeah, I think, I mean, apart from being a wake-up call as to where we already are in terms of the rabbit hole, we're sort of quite down the rabbit hole already. And it's a call to action to wake up and realize and understand the different technological and power pillars that are creating this current digital ecosystem and where we sit as individuals in it. Uh, the call to action, apart from the digital horizon scanning where I go into Web3 and Metaverse and all these ongoing in-train projects is really that we need a new digital social contract. If we think about the traditional social contract in the very, very hundreds of years ago, a government would protect me, um, you know, which is great, but I wouldn't use force on others. It would be the government doing it on my behalf. I would play to the rule. That was a form of the social contract and reference Hobbes and Locke and other in that sort of chapter. But in future, I mean, not in future, in the present, we know that governments are losing increasingly control because of technology innovation and the way within which, and which individuals engage with it. We are not bound by borders any longer. We go to the internet, we could encounter good people or fake people, avatars or real individuals, fake news or real news. So this jungle out there is quite complex. But we have nobody that protects us like a government used to in the old days under the sort of traditional social contract. So what we need to think about as governments lose control of cyberspace and currently big techs are dominating it, we need to find a number of key principles which I'm listing according to which you should design systems and think about the level of equilibrium between the people, the business and the private sector, because otherwise any Web3 promise will equally not be fulfilled because it will be, again, too centralized, too open to abuse, and it will not give enough power to the individual, which is really that decentralization. If we all as individuals have more of a say and more of a control, you create 
more decentralization, and you could even create participation. Maybe not first thing in financial services, but over time. But why couldn't you participate in really important UN decisions about the environment, which impacts all of us? Why is this only delegated to certain individuals and power structures? So using technology to make a more participatory, democratic, human environment in the digital ecosystem is something that has to be embedded in the future in that way, achieving a digital social contract that's really missing today. And we will just see the consequences of that unless we rein in um, as we're building that new generation of internet and engagement in the digital economy. Well, this is something that, that you know absolutely affects us all and, and should matter to all of us. So we'll be putting a link just below the, the podcast episode so that um, our audience can go away and an audio book. And I would absolutely urge them to read it because there's some really important messages in there. As we were talking about earlier, lots of kind of history of, of payments, which is just, you know, equally fascinating on its own. And then obviously so much insight, Ruth, on your part. Look, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been great to have you on. Thank you so much, Ellie. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. My thanks again to Ruth there. And as I mentioned, uh, you can find a link below this episode uh, on the page if you want to go and order Ruth's book and I would definitely urge you to do so there is so much insights in there and it really is an incredibly fascinating read uh, something that that is quite an urgent topic I think in many respects for other more recent episodes of the Open Banking Expo Unplugged podcast you can find those at the on-demand section of openbankingexpo.com until next time goodbye for now